The mind in its own nature is clear, it's lucid, it's unobstructed. Its nature is to simply know, to know whatever is arising, to know the display of appearances. But somehow we don't recognize very often the simplicity, the simplicity of mind, simplicity of awareness, the open, empty, selfless nature of awareness. We get distracted, we get caught up, we get lost in a whole variety of ways. We get lost through certain very long-established habit patterns or conditioned tendencies of the mind. And often these habit patterns are so familiar to us. We're so used to being in them, acting them out, that they really remain invisible. They're so much a part of who we think we are. Until we bring the power of mindfulness, the power of investigation, so that we begin to see more clearly and understand all of these conditioned tendencies. <clears throat> the Buddha talked of how difficult it is to train the mind. It's not an easy task. In the, coming from the warrior caste, he used many warrior images. He said it would be easier to conquer single-handedly a thousand enemies and to do that a thousand different times than to come to a deep understanding of oneself and to conquer oneself in that image. So just picture yourself on this battlefield, right? <laughs> surrounded by a thousand en enemies and somehow you manage to overcome them. And you do that a thousand different times and that's an easier task than what you're doing here. So if you're having a few problems, <laughs> Be patient, it's understandable. And yet, on the other side, the Buddha pointed out that it is possible to do this. That step by step and moment by moment, in a very systematic way, we can begin to uncover, we can begin to disentangle the tangle of these patterns. In one of the suttas, in the Middle End Sayings, the Buddha spoke very directly to the importance of this. The importance of seeing through these habit patterns of mind. He said that one should make an end to suffering without abandoning the underlying tendencies towards lust or desire for pleasant feeling aversion for unpleasant feeling, and ignorance of neutral feeling, this is impossible. That one should come to an end of suffering without abandoning these underlying tendencies, that this is impossible. Went on to say that one should make an end to suffering by abandoning the underlying tendencies of desire for the pleasant, aversion to the unpleasant, ignorance of the neutral, this is possible. So you see actually what our task is. It's to see very clearly each of these underlying tendencies which run very deep, they have deep roots in the mind. And through our awareness, through our investigation, to abandon them, not to get caught by them, not to be identified with them. And one of the benefits of team teaching and having the variety of teachers here is that you get quite expert representation of each of these three tendencies. <laughs> and Carol the other night gave a talk on aversion. In the next six-week period, Sharon will talk about delusion. Tonight I'd like to offer my particular expertise 
and talking about desire for pleasant feelings. Desire in English, the word in English, has several different meanings. And so just to begin to understand what we're talking about, we need to clarify the meaning or how we're using the word. Desire can mean greed. You know, that clinging, grasping quality of mind. It can mean motivation to do something. We have a desire to do. So that's a neutral, that motivation could be associated with greed, could be with generosity, with kindness. It's simply the motivating quality. We also say desire in English. We use the word desire to mean just the satisfaction of basic wants. You know, food and shelter and... The way we're using desire here and what the Buddha was talking about is the desire of craving. It's the greed factor of mind. And the Pali word for this is tanha, and it's often translated in a very uh, useful way. It's translated as thirst. And just if you sort of think for a moment or feel for a moment what it's like when you're thirsty, when you're thirsting, that's very much the feeling of this craving or thirsting for something. When we don't understand the force of this desire, when we don't understand the force or the quality of this thirsting, it very naturally leads to clinging, to grasping, to holding on, to attachment, and to suffering. So the Buddha spoke of three kinds of craving three kinds of thirsting or desire. There's the thirsting for sense pleasures, for the pleasant feelings through the senses. There's the thirsting or desire or craving <clears throat> for existence. And there's the desire or craving for non-existence. Now each one of these, desire for sense pleasures, for existence, for non-existence, each one of these create and solidify in us a strong sense of self. And each one of them obscures the natural freedom of mind. We can see desire for, ve for pleasant feeling very easily, especially when we look at those things we're most attached to. And we can see this desire for pleasant feelings in our body, for pleasant sensations, pleasant sense objects. We can see desire for pleasant experience, pleasant feeling in our attachments to other people or to particular objects, you know, pleasing objects. And there's a wide range of intensity it's really helpful to see this in our own minds. It can range from an obsessive passion about something, you know, that totally dominates or rules our lives. It's interesting that in the West, not only in the West actually, in a lot of world literature, it's about, it's often about some obsessive passion that is ruling a life. It could be a kind of addictive craving. You know, maybe it's not some, some grand passion, but it's the power of addiction to something. You know, and we're, I think, increasingly familiar with the danger of that habit pattern of mind. It's very powerful when the mind gets addicted. It could take the form not maybe of addictive craving, but maybe just recurrent fantasies you know, that we get lost in again and again. Or even, just on a very small scale, desire could take the form of just a passing want. You know, this kind of wanting mind, wanting thought in the mind. Heard a very, uh, sort of an amusing story, but also telling uh, about the Dalai Lama. 
as you probably know, he has, he has a real interest in you know, mechanical things, technological things. Uh, and so one time he was teaching in L.A., and he was being driven to the, to the place of the teachings where he was giving the talks. And they were going down this one street where there were a lot of electronic stores. And so he said that, you know, after driving by uh, every day for a week, driving by and looking in all these stores, he said he found himself wanting things he didn't even know what they were. <laughs> Now that's the Dalai Lama. <laughs> but I thought, how familiar. <laughs> hmm, that looks, that looks good. <laughs> it's deeply rooted. On retreat, the kind of field of desire, it narrows considerably, but not the force of desire. You know, mind still finds countless opportunities for it to arise. You know, for those of you who have a particularly favorite walking spot, how are you when you are walking, leaving the hall? Are you nice and slow and patient? Or is it, got to get to my spot? You know, I've noticed very often the difference between how I am in walking back and forth and how I am when I'm walking to lunch. You know, it's just, just kind of that slight energetic pull forward. <laughs> you know, at different times for different people in the sitting practice, just, you know, recurring sexual fantasies, getting lost in, again and again in the enjoyment of that. Or maybe it's in... You know, the, the whole VR, Vipassana romance uh, syndrome. You know, and you start kind of sneaking these furtive glances at the object of your, your VR. Get lost in internal dramas again and again. The desire of wanting diversion in you know, anything but the breath. <laughs> it's very hard just as an example, at least it was for me, maybe it's easy for you, but to actually walk past the bulletin board without looking at it. You know, even notices that you've read a hundred times already, because the mind is just looking, you know, it's wanting something, some, some little hit. We need to just look at this whole range from the very intense ones you know, overwhelming ones, to the very minor ones, we really need to understand how desire is working in our minds and in our lives. Very often in meditation practice, desire can come in the form of expectation. And this is uh, a very important thing to say. It's the desire for something to happen. Sometimes people get lost in uh, competitive sitting with a strong comparing mind, comparing themselves to other yogis. Or in one course that I was at, this was was years ago, it was that first Upandita course in 84. Somehow it felt like I was involved in some kind of race to the finish. You know, and I was in that kind of expectation or wanting a result. I actually had a great lesson right outside this hall because I was really caught up in that. You know, and it was all, it was competitive and it was comparing and I was expecting and wanting a result. And then I was doing, and I was in a lot of suffering with all this. I wasn't an easy free state at all. And I remember walking outside just here, it was in the springtime, uh, just on this bricked walkway outside. Uh, and I just noticed the flowers you know, beginning to come up. And some had come up and already blossomed. And some were, the flowers had come up, but they hadn't opened yet. And some just the shoots were coming up. And it was just seeing that. It was really a lesson for me because I realized, 
each of these flowers will open in its own time. You know, and we don't pull on them to make them open more quickly. <laughs> and I, I just said to myself, relax. You know, relax into the Dharma. Let the Dharma flower in its own time. And it really helped me to let go of that kind of wanting in terms of expectation in the practice. Sometimes it's not uh, specifically expectation, but it's the desire to hold on to some pleasant state that we're having. You know, maybe you're feeling very calm or peaceful or quiet or rapturous or whatever. You know, and finally, after all these weeks, you know, there are a few moments of this, and the mind, okay, how can I hold on to this? You know, and we start grasping. Or wanting to get something back. You know, we've had it and then it's gone away, and we're striving, we're wanting, we're craving for that to come back again. Holding on, trying to hold on to some experience which has passed is exactly like dragging a corpse around. You know, that experience is gone, it's dead, it's over, it's finished. Can we let go? The desire of expectation always brings agitation and disappointment. It is a setup for suffering. And so we want to see it when it arises in the mind, so we're not seduced by it. All of these desires, when they're unseen, hinder concentration and obscure the natural clarity, the natural lucidity, the natural wisdom of the mind. And we become entranced by the particular object of our wanting, whether something internal, something external. We get seduced by it and then become identified with the very force of wanting, force of, of longing. We really get bound up, entangled with our attachments. And so what we can do on retreat in this kind of situation is really to look carefully and deeply and systematically about how all of this is happening. The ironic aspect to desire or wanting is not only does it hinder our concentration and clear seeing, it doesn't deliver on its promise of happiness. You know, we get caught up again and again because we think this is going to make me happy, and yet over and over again it fails to deliver that. So one wonders, when will we learn? When will we catch on? We go after the happiness of different sense pleasures because of the pleasant feeling. But as you know, these pleasant feelings don't last. The pleasant feelings come and go and change. And so we're always looking for another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. But none of them last. This is the force that keeps the whole wheel of samsara turning. You know, our desire for these pleasant feelings, they're there for some time, they go. There's no end to it. Munindra, when I first met him in Bodh Gaya in India, my first Dharma teacher, he had a wonderful uh, question which he, which he asked very often. He would say, where is the end of seeing? Where is the end of hearing, the end of tasting, the end of touching? We keep looking to these experiences for some kind of completion. Well, the next taste, the next pleasant sensation, the next happy thought. But there is no end precisely because the pleasantness of these feelings is transitory. How many have we already enjoyed? This is not some esoteric knowledge. 
you know, we all know this from our own experience. We simply have to really look clearly and carefully at the nature of experience. You know, we've enjoyed so many pleasant feelings already. So what? Where are they? They don't, in the end, do it for us. They are not the source of fulfillment, of happiness, of peace. And we know that. His Holiness Karmapa had a wonderful little phrase about practice. He said, we have to do what we know. We know this, and so we have to actually put it into practice. Now this doesn't mean that we should never enjoy ourselves, or that somehow we should try to keep ourselves away from pleasant experience. That's not the implication at all. It's just that we realize the impermanent nature of that enjoyment, or the impermanent nature of the pleasant feeling, and so we don't get attached, we don't get obsessed, we don't get addicted to them. And I think it raises some very important questions in our lives. How much of our life, how much of our energy do we want to invest in just accumulating more of these pleasant feelings? How much of our life is revolving around that? Now, Dharma practice opens up whole new possibilities, whole new arenas of happiness, the possibility of freedom. The desire for pleasant sense experience, that's the first kind of desire or craving. Second kind of desire or craving is the desire for existence. This is often explained traditionally or classically as desire for rebirth, particularly in the deva realms, in the heaven realms. And the Buddha talked often of the celestial, the deva realms, really as a way of delighting the mind and uplifting the mind. And in all of the Buddhist traditions, these these heavenly realms are described in wonderful detail. You know, the beings with these bodies of light and deva musicians and pleasure groves and heavenly meditation halls, you know, where there's no pain because it's just a body of light. You know. It's it said that Maitreya, the coming Buddha, is now living in Tusita realm, which is the fourth of the, the heaven realms sort of teaching, teaching Dharma up there. <laughs> One time Deepama was here, you know, this teacher we've spoken of and will speak of a lot, this wonderful woman from Calcutta who's you know, an amazing being of great realization and great power of mind, and uh, who just had the power to, among other things, to see all these different realms. So I remember one time she was here in the fall and we were uh, standing by Gaston Pond, and it was really beautiful, the pond, like now. You know, all the leaves were turning colors and reflected in the water, and it was really quite exquisitely beautiful. And I asked her, uh, you know, well, is this, this is beautiful as the Deva rounds? And she just looked at me and shook her head, she said, <laughs> not even close. <laughs> so I want to kind of put this whole discussion in the context of one comment that Munindra made about all this, because he realized that for us, you know, who may not have direct experience of these higher realms, there's a, probably a fair degree of skepticism. You know, do they really exist, or are they just you know, people's imagination? And he, he said in talking about this, you don't have to believe this. You don't have to believe any of this. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. (laughs) So I just leave it for you. So for those of us desirous types, for whom the deva realms and talk about them inspires some kind of joy in the mind, still it's important to remember that it's just like that bee in the jar that I talked about in one of the first talks. You know, and it can buzz up to the top 
can buzz up right into the deva realms, but it's still imprisoned in the jar. It's still caught in the great wheel of life and death. And even these uh, devas. A couple of years ago on retreat, I understood another and for me a much more immediate, immediate meaning of this kind of desire or craving, that is, the craving for existence. And it really connected, not kind of with this cosmological vision, but with something very uh, significant in my practice. And that is, I saw this desire for existence as a kind of clinging or craving for the unfolding process itself this momentary process, I saw how my mind kept leaning into the process, often out of interest, you know, because it can get the process itself, as it unfolds, can be so compelling that it draws us into it. And so instead of simply resting in awareness of what's arising in the moment, it's as if we become addicted to becoming. We become addicted to the process of becoming this, becoming this, becoming this, becoming this, as if somehow the next moment will resolve everything. And when that doesn't, leaning into the next and the next. It's as if the mind is pulled forward on a moment-to-moment level. And I saw this was so accurately described by that phrase, desire for existence. It's wanting the next moment. What's particularly seductive about this kind of desire is that we're often living it out in the name of Dharma practice. And in the name of mindfulness, in the name of investigation, we actually get attached to the process. And I had one example of this. I can't remember whether I mentioned this to you or not, but it was, it was really a good moment for me uh, when I was in Burma. And I'd been practicing for months, and my mind was very, uh, very sharp and clear and uh, just seeing, seeing the intricacies of the process. And I was totally fascinated by it. And I went in for an interview with Upandita Sayadaw, and I described with just this... <laughs> amazing kind of clarity of what I was seeing. And all he said to me was, you're too attached to subtlety. <laughs> you know, and it was a great remark, you know, because I really was. You know, and I was kind of just looking so intently to see how much more subtly can I say. But it was a kind of attachment. I didn't allow the mind to settle back. The mind which is free of this kind of craving, this kind of craving for existence, or the process of becoming, disengages the gears of attachment. It's just like kind of you know, depressing the clutch and disengaging the gears. Can we disengage the gears of attachment to the process itself? So we're really resting in this vast and open and empty mind, which is simply allowing each moment to arise without that leaning forward, without that wanting to become. Again, from one of the suttas, the Buddha said, not reviving the past, not hoping to be in the future. Instead, with insight, See each arising state, not craving after past experience, not setting one's heart on future ones, not bound up with desire and lust. You know, in some way, I think it's often easier for us to see and perhaps let go of past experiences, kind of see them as past and recognize that we need to let go. But sometimes I think we don't see this desire to become, the desire for future experience. 
Can we see that with clarity and insight and simply let go? The third kind of craving is the desire for non-existence. And this is, this is like the great annihilationist view. You know, that everything ends at death. And the kind of craving or desire for that. Now this is quite interesting because this view also comes from a sense of self. It's fed by the view of self. We think that there is someone not to be reborn. And desire for the end of existence is predicated on the belief that there's someone there who will end. Now, in the great discovery in practice, it's like the cutting through or the moment of awakening is to see that there's no one there either to take birth or not to take birth. There's no one there. There's no self there in the first place. So that's <laughs> what a relief. Yeah. That understanding really frees us from this desire for becoming anything or the desire not to become. Because we see that both are coming out of the ignorance of believing in some self, some I. The, the writer Wei Wu Wei, he kind of put it very uh, succinctly in a little aphorism. He said, it's like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. <laughs> We're barking up the non-existent tree of self. And this is kind of the expression of our lives, and I love that image. You know, just this. It's the ignorance of this, the not understanding that there's no one there in the first place to either take birth or not take birth. It's the ignorance of this and the desires that come from that ignorance which keep us going through this round, uh, this samsaric round. So how can we use this time? How can we use the time of the retreat and meditation practice to really understand deeply and exactly and profoundly how desire of all these three different kinds. You could say the more ordinary desire for sense, pleasure, the more meditative desire for existence, for this process of becoming, or the desire for non-existence. How can we really understand deeply how all of this is working in our practice and in our lives. The most important thing we need to do is to recognize the desire or the wanting mind when it arises. To note it, to recognize it, and to bring a quality of interest. It's not about judging certainly not about judging the desire or judging ourselves. This is the driving force of samsara, this energy of wanting. So can we have a certain respect for it and a certain interest? This is our chance to really understand it deeply. We can notice it arising many times in the day. Now, this is not a rare occurrence. Notice what takes you away from the simplicity of the moment's experience. I mean, here we are, we're just sitting, you know, feeling the breath or taking a step. What is it that pulls the mind away from just that simplicity of being with what's there? Is it the desire for some entertainment of some kind? You know, for some other experience, 
Are we leaning into the flow, you know, toppling forward in that way? The desire itself is not the problem. It's our identification with the desire that entangles us. Can we really see in the moment how this identification with desire uh, imprisons us? You know, there's an energetic contraction and then the relief when that desire leaves. So the first step is just seeing clearly with interest, that kind of investigation. The second way of working is to begin to explore the meaning and the power and as hard as this may be to believe, the kind of joy of renunciation. Because in our culture, renunciation does not have very good PR. You know, we, we tend to think of renunciation when we hear that word. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a burden. Uh, and it's well expressed by uh, famous line of St. Augustine where he was praying and he said, Dear Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. You know, and that's sort of how we feel about renunciation. You know, either not quite yet or, you know, we'll do it and we don't really like it, but we know it's good for us. And, but I think we can really begin to explore renunciation in a whole different way, really understand it uh, differently. And that is by beginning to see, really see, connect with the experience that attachment or addiction is the suffering. And the letting go of attachment actually is a kind of freedom and a happiness. I had a somewhat trivial example of this, but it was very striking to me. This last this summer I was teaching in Russia. And I've been there several times teaching, and in past years, uh, there's always, the food situation was always quite uh, difficult. There wasn't a lot of food, it was very hard to get uh, adequate food for the retreat, even just very basic staple items. But this year, just with the whole economic reorganization there, uh, everything was available. You know, it's, it's expensive, but it's there to be had. And so the food on the retreat was pretty good. And it was actually uh, very reminiscent of a lot of my grandmother's cooking. You know, there was borscht and blintzes. And <laughs> so it was great. But one morning we come down, and all that says there for breakfast, the only thing is a small plate of coleslaw. And I came down and... You know, I looked at this plate of coleslaw. <laughs> coleslaw for breakfast. <laughs> I had to go through a little process there, <laughs> you know, of just seeing when I was caught in my desire and attachment to something different you know, like porridge. <laughs> I was really quite contracted and pretty unhappy. <laughs> but I went through this little process and I thought, oh, well, just, you know, pretend you're a monk going out for arms rounds and one morning you get coleslaw. <laughs> so I kind of just readjusted my mind a little bit. Yeah, and it was okay, it wasn't great, but, <laughs> but it was just such a good lesson in how to the degree that I could really renounce that attachment, the mind was easy. It was just what it was. And to the extent that I was lost in the attachment, I was really uneasy about it.
This is the power of renunciation. It's, it's like letting go of what burdens us. The renunciation is not the burden. We're actually letting go of the burden of our attachment, of our holding on. And so it's very helpful to really just look at that and play with that in various contexts on the retreat. Another way uh, that I worked with this renunciation of desire uh, also came when I was when I was doing a, a retreat here at IMS. I, I had this image which was very clear in my mind. I had this image of the practice. It was going along very smoothly, just kind of flowing along, and it felt like I was on this highway. You know, a freeway or something. And then there were all these exit signs. And the exit signs, you know, they were kind of uh, announcing or directing one to what I called my amusement parks. You know, and so I'm going down the highway and I see this sign, whatever, you know, food fantasy, sexual fantasy, memory fantasy, whatever. It's anything that was kind of, you know, calling my attention. So I could just watch my mind, you know, going down this highway, cruising along, see the sign, oh, that looks interesting. <laughs> Take the exit, go down, be lost in whatever that particular scenario was for however long, you know, half an hour later, <laughs> get back on the highway. And then doing that over and over and over again, after about the 10,000th time, saw the sign, you know, driving along the highway, see the sign, get off the exit, but there's a little more awareness. Ah, I'm off the exit and just get back on the highway again. Don't even bother going down the road. As I continued my practice, cruising along, just going along, noticing what's arising, see these exit signs, you know, to the amusement park and not even have to get off the exit. Just know, oh yeah, there's, there's the sign and keep on going. Not being seduced by it. That's non-seduction is the power from another side of renunciation, of letting go, of not getting lost. It's tremendously freeing to begin to understand things in this way. So we want to notice the desire. We want to understand the meaning of renunciation of letting go of attachment, letting go of the clinging. We want to look carefully in those moments when desire is present. And also some of the other forms, emotions, that are really desire disguised. You know, or wanting disguised. It might be the emotion of jealousy, or the emotion of envy. Really, what's going on there is a wanting. It's the wanting mind. When I notice different aspects of desire or wanting, a very helpful note that I make, I see it in the mind and I say, oh, this is the wanting mind wanting. That's all that's happening. It's the wanting mind wanting. It's not I, it's not self, it doesn't belong to anyone. And so it frees one from that identification. Notice when these wanting minds pass. Notice the sense of relief. If we've been identified in a desire, notice the sense of relief when the desire is gone. It's like we've been let out of the grip of something. One of the great liberating insights that comes on retreat, and this is a very useful thing to observe again and again, is that desire passes by itself. It does not have to be gratified to pass away. That desire, like everything else, shares in the great truth of impermanence. If we can simply see it arise in the mind, Note it, watch it, be with it. The desire, like all other thoughts and feelings, self-liberate. 
Well, this is, this is a very great insight because normally in our lives when desire is there and strong, we think, well, I have to do something about this. I either have to suppress it or I have to gratify it you know, as a way of releasing it. And the lesson of retreat, of the practice, is you don't have to do anything. You can really relax back in awareness, let the desire come, be there, feel it, and go. So see this particularly with whatever desires are coming up strongest for you. You know, maybe it's food fantasies or sexual desire or expectation, whatever it is. Just notice the arising of the desire and notice, bring insight, bring clarity to the fact that this desire will by itself simply pass away. There's nothing we have to do, there's no action we have to take about it. There's one other little aspect of this, which... might be expressive of my attachment to subtlety, but it was a very useful little seeing. So I'll just pass it on. In working with desire, I found it very helpful to really look carefully at what is feeding the desire, what's keeping that pattern of desire going. And I saw for myself that it's not the object or the experience that I had the desire for, but it was rather the desire was for the pleasant feeling that came with it. Now this is why it was so freeing for me to make that distinction, that it's not the object per se, or not the experience per se, but really the desire is for the pleasant feeling that's associated with it. It was freeing to me because when I looked carefully at this process, I found myself indulging many little desires through the day because I would have the thought, well, I'm not really attached to that. I'm not attached to the cup of tea. I'm not attached to looking at the, I'm not attached to the notice on the bulletin board, you know. And because that statement was true, it wasn't the cup of tea I was attached to, and it wasn't the notice on the bulletin board I was attached to. I overlooked the more subtle process that was going on. I overlooked that more subtle attachment to the momentary pleasant feeling, even if it's a minor one. You know, oh, there's, there's a certain pleasant feeling from that cup of tea or from, you know, looking at the board again. And that the mind was going again and again for another hit of pleasant feeling. And until I noticed that carefully, and of course, even after noticing it, it's like the mind just kept repeating that pattern because I would, I would explain it away to myself, oh, you know, I'm not really attached to this. Quite true, but the mind was attached to the hit of that pleasant feeling. That's what it wanted again and again. In seeing this, it just made the whole process more clear to me, and it reconnected me with the possibility of remembering that that pleasant feeling which I could see my mind going for was also just another impermanent moment. When I saw that that's what my mind was reaching for, for what? You know, there's another pleasant hit. It's going to just come and go. And so it released the addiction in that moment. It released the attachment. Krishnamurti kind of expressed something very uh, well about this. He said, it's the truth which liberates. 
not our efforts to be free. You know, and really that's what we're doing here. We're, we're just trying to see clearly what's true, how the mind is working, how it is that we get caught. And just in the seeing of that, that's what liberates. Now the beauty and power of a long retreat is that it gives us time to settle in, to deepen the concentration, to really develop this interest and power of investigation so we can begin to disentangle from these very powerful conditioned habits of mind. Can we practice from a place of very great interest? Wanting to understand more and more clearly the nature of attachment, the nature of wanting, of craving. What is that energy like? How is it working? And the possibilities of freedom. Learning about desire on retreat in this situation helps us see it much more clearly in life outside. You know, if we learn about desire and how it's working in our minds here, then in all those many life situations outside where desire is operative, we bring much greater clarity to it. And we have more the space for discriminating wisdom when to act on it, when to let it go. Seeing clearly opens up the possibility of freedom for us. In, probably we've mentioned that uh, example the Buddha gave of the balance of right effort tuning the strings of the lute. You know, too tight, it doesn't work. Too loose, it doesn't work. Well, the, the monk, the lute player, his name was Soma. And at another time, the Buddha addressed these lines to Soma, and I, I just kind of sum up all of this. He said, the Buddha to Soma, that the gift of truth is the highest gift, and the taste of truth is the sweetest taste, and the joy of truth is the greatest joy. Now, this is what our practice is all about seeing deeply what's true. It's the highest gift, it's the sweetest taste, it's the greatest joy. Let's sit for a few minutes. <clears throat> 